We need to move this investment into organizations that can continue building. And building doesn't mean one group builds some tech, that group dissolves, the tech goes into a rot pile, and then the DNC needs to pick out the rot pile. That's a terrible method. We need to keep teams and organizations and infrastructure and technology together for this to be successful. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. The next two episodes on this podcast are with technologists from the Biden presidential campaign. Today's guest is Matt Hodges, who is Director of Engineering. Matt was a software engineer who came into the political space through the groundwork and Tim Shell, which was Michael Slaby and Eric Schmidt's technology group that worked for Hillary's 2016 campaign. Matt and I discussed the improvements in the political technology ecosystem for progressives since 2016 that allowed the Biden campaign to buy rather than build a greater part of the campaigning tools that were required. And we talked about what they did build, both for the primary and the general election. We had a wide-ranging conversation worth your listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Matt Hodges with Biden for President. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Matt. Hey, Nathaniel. It's great to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. So my name is Matt Hodges, and I was most recently the engineering director at the Biden campaign. I was with the campaign since uh, July of 2019, so through the entirety of the primary season and through the general election. And before that, I bounced around the political tech space in the 2016 election. I was a software engineer um, with an organization called The Groundwork. The Groundwork was, uh, for all intents and purposes, a group of engineers that were embedded to work with the Clinton 2016 campaign. And that was my first foray into politics. The Groundwork was uh, Eric Schmidt funded? Yeah, it had a number of of backers, uh, including Eric Schmidt. Um, The Groundwork was a product and project that was under the umbrella of an organization called Tim Shell. We existed initially to to build software for the Clinton campaign in 2016. And um, I I like to tell people that I I built technology for the Clinton campaign, not on the Clinton campaign, because I think uh, a lot of folks who work on campaigns are very particular about saying you're on the campaign. So I I, I built tech for that campaign and I worked very closely with them. Uh, We spent a good amount of time in Brooklyn during that election cycle, uh, building technology w- with that team, uh, it was a very large and advanced team in 2016, and I, you know, I, I got to got to work firsthand on on the stuff they were building. That was a lot to do with Michael Slaby, right? That's right. That's right. Michael Slaby. Um, I, I don't know what his his official title was, but he ran Tim Shell, which which was the the organization there, and Slaby had a, a good amount of experience from the 08 and 12 campaigns, as, as I'm sure you know. Well, he's been a guest on the podcast a couple times. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's a pretty good preparation. What is an engineering director, though, or what was it for Biden? Yeah, that's a good question. So what it meant for our organization is that the software engineers on the Biden campaign who were building product reported up to me, and I reported to the CTO, The distinction there is that the software engineers on my team had different skill sets and were bringing different contributions than 
um, the data analysts. So the, the analytics team on the campaign was much larger than the, the software engineering team. The folks doing work on the analytics team, I think many of them also came from a software engineering background, but they were much more focused on working in our data warehouse and and building queries and models and things like that, whereas my team was building products and platform integrations. I guess there's probably people who would be surprised that a presidential campaign has all of that technology or technologists. Why do they have all that? I think people are correctly surprised by that because at the end of the day, the function of a presidential campaign is to... Uh, get someone elected. And the activities around getting someone elected generally are not that different from marketing. (laughs) You're marketing one product and the product is the candidate. I think the evolution of presidential campaigns that got us to this point where we have software engineers has taken, taken a really interesting arc over the past at least three cycles. I think you could go back four or five cycles to really hone in on the the origins of how we got here. But something that I've been thinking about of how we got here kind of stems back from 2012. And I think 2012, a lot of people look back at Obama 12 and they identify it as reimagining what campaign tech and data can do. There's a lot of mythology from 2012 about the cave <laughs> and and what that meant. Uh, the cave for people who don't know was is is referred to as this windowless room at Obama HQ where technologists were cranking out data models and building digital integrations to to power that campaign. Um, so I think 2012 is really the the big acceleration of imagining what technology can do for a presidential campaign. I think 2016 was a a natural extension of that. I think 2016 looked at what happened in 2012 and they they wanted to replicate that and do it bigger and better. The Clinton 16 campaign had a massive uh, technology arm. They were building so much in-house. They were building so much um, you know, f- greenfield product development in-house because I think they looked at uh, the successes of 12 and they said more, bigger, better. And I don't think that was the wrong approach for 2016, but I think a lot of that came out of the, a necessity that the ecosystem around democratic politics in 2016 kind of mandated it. There wasn't a massive vendor ecosystem. There, there were some vendors and some of them very large and in, entrenched and have a pretty good place in the democratic ecosystem. But for example, in 2016, we were building our donation processor in-house because the players in the space weren't as good as they needed to be. And we did the same thing for volunteer and events management. We built that product in-house as well. What I think happened after 2016, there was this big emotional hit for so much of the world after the loss of 2016 that I think bled into a lot of the technology industry. Um, There were so many people who saw Uh, Donald Trump's win in 2016, and they said, okay, what can I do to help? How can I contribute? And people started coming forward, asking that question, and the answer ended up being a lot of people started companies or nonprofit organizations. And so what we saw in, in the couple of years after 2016 was this explosion of the vendor ecosystem. So when we came into the 2020 cycle, we saw the maturity of the space. It's not an exaggeration to say we came into the 2020 cycle uh, saying, how how much can we not build this time? How much can we lean on the the technology ecosystem instead of building it again in-house? While we'd still had a significant technical staff on the 2020 campaign out of necessity, there were so many things that I'm extremely thankful that we didn't have to build again. Um, Act Blue matured immensely between 2016 and 2020. Uh, there was never a question where, whether we were going to use Act Blue as our donation processor for 2020. It made sense. It worked. Their engineering team was a pleasure to work with. But some newer names in the space, like Mobilize, came up and they were doing volunteer and events management. 
I can't overemphasize, like, thank God we didn't have to build a volunteer uh, management system. Like that was, that was wonderful. While the technology team was, was still present and, and doing amazing work on the 2020 campaign, the fact that we had to build less and we could operate with a smaller team than we did in 2016, I think is the correct direction for, for democratic politics. There's not a great history on either side of building software during the campaign that works as well as you would like it to be. Oh, that's that's 100%. And, you know, we actually had a motto on, on my team. This was one of the first things I said to any software engineer that, that we onboarded. I said, we are here to build bronze metal software. <laughs> and I, I tried to ingrain that on every product that we took on. It was because at the end of the day, we had a finish line. We needed this this technology to get us to election day and it needed to work. And if there were rough edges and if there were bugs and if there were edge cases that we could more quickly fix by just papering over them or educating our users, then I wanted to ship that. We didn't have the time or luxury or staffing to make that gold medal software. So on the one hand, the incentive was to win this election and not to build beautiful, excellent software. And I think that's kind of why I, I'm happy that the vendor ecosystem is, is improving so much because I want the democratic ecosystem to have more silver metal software and gold metal software. I want these organizations that intend to exist beyond election day to invest in building that excellent technology, not only for presidentials, but for everything down ballot. And if they can service the soft side of the ecosystem as well, that's even better. Um, I think the big question there is how do you fund that? Well, you've mentioned uh, Mobilize and Act Blue, And, you know, I've spent uh, several years of this podcast interviewing the founders of a lot of the new political tech products and, and older ones. What else made it to the presidential level? What else were you able to use? As far as from the, the vendor side? Yeah. Those are kind of like the, the rock stars I see in the space, but there are plenty of um, smaller vendors that I think are still getting their footing in the space and still have some ways to go, but they're, they're on the right path. A lot of the vendor selection in the space is, is not driven by the tech team. It's driven by the program teams, whether it's the digital organizing or the traditional organizing or the finance or or the compliance, or, or, or any of those things. <laughs> Let me just say that some of the selection of these vendors, I did not have my hand on the lever of all of them, nor, nor should I have. For example, um, I know that our um, online fundraising team really appreciated a group called Fracture. And what they were doing is they were helping us ingest our uh, online fundraising data that was passing through ActBlue into their analytics platform to help model and project how much money we were raising and what we could do in the very short term. Their product was essentially to tell, tell our, our data and fundraising teams, how are we doing right now and how much money can we spend tomorrow? Which as you get into the general election and money starts flowing much more quickly, that's a very important question to ask because uh, you, you need to stay solvent, but you also need to spend your money very efficiently. So I think Fracture integrated into ActBlue and our data processes really well and in a really interesting way. I don't know enough about the organization to say how mature they are, but we worked directly with them um, from a technical perspective. And That's Chris Lundberg's group? I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah I had him on the show back in 2019. He's an uh, entrepreneur who had been in the space for a while. He had been part of making salsa. And then this is his new enterprise doing that. What did other departments use? Yeah. So something else that we leaned heavily on um, in the general election was Optimizely, which is a ver very big player in not only the political space, but the commercial space. I think Optimizely builds just a wonderful product for doing testing on web properties and our digital teams and online fundraising teams leaned heavily into Optimizely. Something that we also had the luxury of this cycle was a number of folks who had Optimizely experience volunteered with the tech team to help us build out these experiments and optimizations on our website. And I'm super grateful for that because 
my team did not come to this campaign with with optimizely experience. So having volunteers with that experience really helped us leverage that tool. What did you have to build? Yeah, so the, <laughs> the answer to that question is actually different whether we're talking about the primary or the general election. Yeah, why don't you start through through the primary? Yeah, so in the primary, we actually built a lot more. We were doing much more product development in the primary. The honest reason for that was the question always came down to money. It's no secret that during the primary season, a lot of our fundraising was lagging. You could go onto basically any political media outlet and you can find articles from 2019 and early 2020 saying things like, though the Biden campaign is doomed because they aren't raising any money. But setting that aside, the, the truth is we, we didn't have the money to buy a lot of the tools that we wanted. And so when my team was approached by um, some of these program decision makers about what can we do when we can't afford these tools, our answer was, well, we can build you the bronze metal version of this uh, and it'll be quick and dirty and it won't have all the features, but it'll get you maybe 80% of the way there. So some of the more visible products that we built during the primary season, one of them was called uh, the Team Joe app, which was our mobile relational organizing app. We built that completely in-house. And that was, again, completely a function of the fact that we couldn't afford the off-the-shelf tool that the program wanted to use. It served a purpose as a good proof of concept of, uh, do we have the program organization around this to make it a good tool? And what are we not able to build so that when we got into the general election, we were able to say, okay, the Team Joe app didn't do all of the things we needed it to do, but we ended up using a white label version of uh, OutVote to make the Vote Joe app, which was our general election app. Were you able to then take the data from the primary, move it, move it into OutVote and be successful going forward? Or did you have to start again or how well did that work? Yeah, so we were able to take a little bit of the data based on who our users were and reach out to them, basically asking them to migrate to this new app. It wasn't a seamless forklift, which was unfortunate, but we were able to use that contact data and, and basically send them outreach, whether it was texting them or emailing them saying, hey, well, welcome to the general election uh, to celebrate. We've got this brand new uh, app. Please move over there. I don't think anyone would suggest that was the ideal migration, but I think it was it was the world we were operating in. Another good example during the primaries, we built our own peer-to-peer texting application in-house. And again, we did that out of the question of what, what's the cheapest way we can do this. So we ran our entire peer-to-peer texting operation on a tool we, we called Pencil, which was our, our in-house peer-to-peer texting tool. It, it worked Honestly, I'm, I'm super proud of that tool. It worked really, really well. Was that from scratch or did you build it off uh, open source stuff that was already out there? Yeah, we started from scratch. <laughs> and we are well aware of some of the previous art in this space, especially Spoke is the one that comes, comes to mind. And the honest explanation of why we did this from scratch instead of with Spoke was kind of an accident. A couple of our engineers were just toying around with the Twilio API and building some tooling on top of it. And then we just kind of had momentum. We just kept going and pencil kind of materialized. And by the time the product was 75% there, we said, okay, well, should we keep going or should we switch over to spoke? And the engineers were were like, well, uh, we know how this thing works and we don't know how spoke works. So let's just keep going. What did you do in that regard in the general? There was a long (laughs) debate, I would say, between the digital organizers and the technology team about what tool we were going to use in the general. And it came down to a number of options, one of which was to continue using Pencil. Another was to move over to Spoke. The third option, which we ultimately ended up with, was using um, ThruText. That was really about whether or not we felt we had the engineering capacity to improve Pencil enough to make it work for the general election needs, which we decided we didn't. And then that same question kind of applied to running Spoke. Did we feel like we had the engineering capacity to uh, completely shift over to an entirely new product, have the engineering team support a self-hosted Spoke, and then be confident in the success of that? It was my technical opinion that the risks 
of moving to spoke very rapidly and putting the onus on our engineering team outweighed the benefits. I know there were some folks on the digital organizing team who disagreed with me on that, but at the end of the day, that was something that was going to land on my team. So I I was um, very concerned about the risks there. And I think through those conversations of the technical risks, as well as what the program team needed, is how we ended up using through text during the general election. What else did you end up building? Yeah, so those were the two big products that we built that were voter-facing during the primary. Um, But we also built a lot of internal tools that the entire purpose was to support uh, campaign staff. And some of those things were really big and some of those things were really small. So like on the small side of of that, um, we had an ask from the comms team one day that said, hey, I want a Chrome extension where I can press this button and it will strip out all the images and change the font of any website I'm on. And we, you know, we went back and forth to them for about an hour and we said, does, does like a reader view or a pocket or an Instapaper do that for you? And they said, yeah, but you know, I want these couple changes. So we sat down for five hours and built a Chrome extension that did what they needed and got that over to them. So like that was a tiny little, little thing that the team put together. Um, but we built much larger internal products as well Um, One of them was a document storage and search engine for our research and comms team where they could upload documents, whether it was uh, PDFs or other docs that they had compiled into uh, a searchable database that they could go back and reference. This tool also allowed them to capture videos and do transcriptions of those videos so that they could uh, go back in time and search for keywords of media appearances and find those videos and those transcripts, and which proved really helpful, especially in, in research when talking to journalists. I know that they were able to, to go back and say, well, actually, no, Joe Biden said this, this, and this, and here's the transcript, and we have that. So that was a really, really important internal tool that we ended up building. And we built that because the comms and research folks came to us and said, there's no tool on the market that does exactly what we need. What can you do? And was the UI the most beautiful? No, but it was, again, a piece of bronze metal software that I think saved thousands of hours of human work for them. Did you use anything for opposition research or vetting? There's there's a number of tools that let you search public data or shortcut that. As far as public data and opposition research... We use some of the like bread and butter data sources out there. You know, for example, the ProPublica has their FEC itemizer that lets you really dive into a lot of the public FEC data in a, in a really nice way. Um, and then we kind of use that as a, as a guiding model for some of the work that we did. Um, we built some internal tooling to do donor vetting that was both for opposition research, but also for our own, our own vetting. Some of these things were based on campaign promises that Joe Biden had made. For example, he said on day one that he was not going to accept money from oil executives, and which is a really noble thing to say, but like that's a hard thing to like accomplish because donations are flowing in rapidly. And how do I know that Tom Smith, who says he works at Exxon, is the same as Thomas Smith, who is on the board of Exxon. I made that name up. Um, but like, how, how do you do that? And that's, that's an interesting technology question. And what we ended up building for our donor vetting pipeline was, was a real-time fuzzy matching process where as donations came in, whether they were through ActBlue or through checks that in the mail or, or whatever other avenue they, they landed in the campaign, we basically built a database of people that we didn't want to take money from and we uh, built some fuzzy matching and real-time analysis on that so that we could augment the work that our compliance team was doing. It seems like the end of the day, you need a list of all your voters and maybe even non-voters that you want to register. Was there a central place that you stored those people? And were you able to have things like that fuzzy matching track how to deduplicate that and keep that clean? That's always such a challenge. I, I think the product side of, of donor vetting was was very much a spinoff from our, our like source of truth. When campaigns operate, you know, at least on the Democratic side, they, they use van. And the, the old adage of is if, if it's not in van, it doesn't exist, I think 
still holds true to this day. We definitely tried not to duplicate that data as much as possible. But um, when we were doing things that, that involved building products of the tech team's needs, such as donor vetting, we did not want to disrupt the work of the analytics team. So as far as what the analytics team used as their source of truth, we had our own data warehouse that the tech team supported. It was uh, AWS Redshift was, was our data warehouse. And the analytics team did their work off of that. That was kind of the housing ground for all of our data of voters, whether they were registered voters or not registered voters or people we thought were supporting us. And everything from an analytics standpoint was built off of that. But that was not really where we were building our real-time data data processes that the tech team was doing because at the end of the day, our work was not to be the source of truth. Our work was to build something to help the other people who would define the source of truth. Did you guys use that Civis analytics product? We did, yeah. So Civis platform was tightly integrated into our infrastructure. Um, Civis offers basically two models of this where you can use the Civis data warehouse, which is also AWS Redshift, or you could use their model, which is called like bring your own database or something something to that effect. And we ended up going with that model where we hosted our own uh, Redshift cluster. We, in fact, had two Redshift clusters that Civis was able to connect right into. I noticed you spent some time at Alloy. That's more more knowledge about the political data world. Tell me about that time, I guess, consulting to them. And did that help at all when you went to this job? Yeah, so I was doing some technology consulting for Alloy at the very beginning of its existence. Um, In fact, before it had any products to offer, I was one of the first people in the room helping them out um, with this concept of like, what does it mean to build an offer of voter file? Because that, that, that ended up being a key offering from Alloy. And so where we started when I was helping with Alloy was uh, I was going down the list of all the secretaries of state across the country. I I literally started by building a Google spreadsheet of like, okay, where is Vermont's voter file and how, how do you get it and how much does it cost? Where is West Virginia's and so forth and so on. And so the very first thing I did for them was I, I did the research there of how to, how to get the secretaries of state voter files. And then we started with the low hanging fruit the states that made it easy and free or easy and cheap to acquire is where we started. And we built some technology to ingest the Secretary of State voter files and then normalize them into the data model that Alloy was defining because every state has their own data model, <laughs> of course. And the, the data is very, very, very messy. It's not normalized. You see this on Twitter all the time. Someone will discover the voter file exists and they'll say, oh, look, this person was born in 1850 and they voted. It's fraud. And like, no, what it means is the data is bad. So we had to uh, come up with methods uh, for, for cleaning and normalizing that data. That eventually became part of the product offering that Alloy was, was giving to, to the organizations it worked with. Um, by the time that I had stopped consulting with Alloy, there wasn't a product offering on the table yet. It was still in the process of ingesting and normalizing the data. But what that helped me bring to the campaign was this understanding of like, what does a voter file look like and how messy is it pre-processing? You know, I think a lot of folks who work with voter file data they're getting it post-processing through whatever avenue they're getting it. Maybe, maybe it's you know, Target Smart. Target Smart does a lot of work to clean up and, and normalize the data for you. And so I, I had that vantage point of like, what does this look like when it's in this disgusting and gross format where half the zip codes have the letter R in them for no reason? <laughs> yeah. The slow start that you mentioned for Biden, I mean, that was pretty apparent that early in the campaign, I guess for reasons of money and otherwise, the Biden campaign was pretty far behind like the Sanders campaign that had been running already. And I think far behind where where Clinton was, where he had been the time before, from my guess. What consequence do you think that has? And, and if it doesn't have much consequence, I mean, he carried the day. What does that tell us about how important the political tech operation is? I think one of the consequences that we saw from from the primary cycle, if if you 
remove who was ahead and who was behind for just a moment, one of the consequences of just how many campaigns there were directly affected like the staffing distribution. I mean, there are only so many people who want to work in democratic politics. Who are really good technologists. Right, especially from the technology angle, yeah. right? And and I have a lot of thoughts about like the compensation gap between industry and, and, and democratic politics and how hard it is to recruit on that. If you take the technology side of, of staffing, and you find the people who are who are interested and willing to do the work for the significant decrease in compensation, you've, you have a tiny population of people. And now you spread that out across 20, I don't know, 22 campaigns. We simply could not build the operation that the Clinton campaign built in 2016 because there weren't enough people. It just, there, there, it just didn't exist. And so I think part of that created the environment of like, well, sometimes we're just going to have to buy a tool because we don't have the time or people or resources to build it in-house when the staffing, the technical staffing is divided by 22. That was a big part of the reason why we leaned so heavily on the vendor space when we could afford it. I think we lucked into the fact that there was this energy after 2016 to create this vendor ecosystem. If we had the vendor ecosystem of 2016 with 21, 22, 23 campaigns, we would have been in trouble. There would have been a lot of gaps in our technical offerings because we couldn't couldn't have built it all in-house. And if they, they didn't exist externally, it just simply wouldn't have existed, period. And do you think that would have made a difference in outcomes? I think it's hard to say. I think there are a lot of really smart people who will point at uh, where is money best spent in political campaigning, who will say, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is media, whether it's purchased or earned. And I think those people are onto something. Um, I think the definition of media does need to extend very deeply into the digital ecosystem. And I think the way you accomplish that does depend a lot on your technical integrations and the things you're able to build. So do, do I think the outcome would have changed? Uh, it's hard to say. Like, how much sway does MSNBC still have on this? I, I don't know the answer to that. It's not zero. If cable news is still talking about a specific candidate very positively, I mean, that earned media is still incredibly valuable. But I also think, like, if Twitter and Facebook are talking about something, it can influence traditional media. But, like, I think Twitter was very friendly to uh, a lot of campaigns that were not the Joe Biden campaign. And it seems like that didn't end up making the outcome. If you had, as I assume, many options to be in industry or not to do politics, why did you decide to take on this job? After 2016, I, like much of the country, was just riddled with anxiety about what had just happened and what the future of the country was going to look like and how I could best contribute to making the country get back on a better track. And after 2016, um, the groundwork and Tim Shell attempted to continue this work for a variety of reasons that largely came down to funding. We, we weren't able to do that and the groundwork had to shut down. And so I started <laughs> answering the question of like, okay, how do I get an income again? And so what I did is I went back to the tech industry. Um, I went and worked for a company called Datadog. Datadog is a lovely company. They, they treat their employees really well. They compensate folks really well. They've got all of the, the flashy tech startup uh, features of, of a cool office with lots of snacks and, and, and all that fun stuff. But I spent my entire time there just antsy again about like how 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 could I contribute effectively? I, I I felt like the work I was doing every day was contributing to making some founders really rich and not contributing to helping the country. As the 2020 primary season was starting to kick off in 2019, I started looking at all of the campaigns that were being announced. I made it a primary goal for myself to get back involved. People ask me like, well, how'd you end up at the Biden campaign? There were so many options. And that's a fair question. And I started my approach at that time thinking like, okay, I would be more than happy to work with most of these campaigns. I mean that 
uh, genuinely. I, I looked at the 2020 field and just about everyone in the field I regarded as modern day leaders of the Democratic Party, modern day leaders of the progressive movement. And I wanted to find a way to get involved somehow. I ended up with the Biden campaign because one was a function of like, who do you know, right? And I knew people who worked at the Biden campaign and that's how you have these conversations and that's how you start figuring out like, what role can I play on your team? So that was a big part of it. But um, another big part of it was, so I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is not exactly a political or a technology capital of, of, of America. And one of my hard requirements was I needed to be able to contribute to this campaign without moving. And that's kind of like a brand new concept for political campaigns, but pre-pandemic. And this was pre-pandemic, but, you know, I'm, I'm now coming up on six years of remote work. And I, I said to the Biden campaign, I was like, I would love to contribute, but I can't move to Philadelphia. Can we make this work? And I think the Biden campaign was the first campaign to really entertain that opportunity. Who was the CTO? So at the time that I started, um, Dan Woods was the CTO of the Biden campaign. Dan and I had worked together uh, on the groundwork in 2016. So we knew we had a good co-working relationship. And we also knew that we had a shared understanding of what we thought it meant to build technology for a presidential campaign. So that, that was a big part of my inroads to that campaign. And Dan stuck around um, through the primary season. And then at the end of the primary season, he decided to step away. And that was, I believe, in, it was either May or June of 2020. And then shortly after that, in, I believe, early July, uh, the campaign hired Jackie Chang, who um, was also an alum of, of the Clinton 16 cycle and had done work with the DNC. And Jackie came in to take over as, as CTO for the general election. And what was the sort of structure? You referenced that you had a group that reported to the CTO, the product group. Who else reported to the CTO? Yeah, so the two direct reports um, to the CTO, uh, one was me, the engineering director, and the other was the deputy CTO. The deputy CTO oversaw our product managers, and we hired product managers in a really different setup than I think most people in technology think about product managers. We had about one product manager to every two engineers, which I think will surprise some people. But we didn't bring on product managers to manage the engineers. We brought on product managers to actually sit with all of the program departments that we felt we could best service on the campaign. So for example, we brought on a product manager whose sole responsibility was to sit with the online fundraising team and help them think through their product of online fundraising. And if it made sense to incorporate technology, whether it's something we built, something we bought, or some version in between, the product manager's responsibility was to be that bridge to help them deliver their program. Well, let's say Biden runs for re-election. What do you think they should do to be getting ready for that since they have the advantage of maybe having money early and knowing that they'll be in it? Yeah, I think, honestly, the, the biggest thing that I want to see is products not built by the campaign. Do you think there are products that ought to be built? Like, do you see gaps in the market? that someone should be adding to their company that already exists or building a new company around? Yeah, so the biggest thing that I think we're seeing from this explosion of the vendor ecosystem is that these tools don't talk to each other. And the one thing that we built 1,000 times was some level of integration between the tools. Sometimes that was something as simple as a place for a vendor to upload data every 12 hours. And sometimes it was as complex as we had to build APIs and they built APIs and we built scripts that would, would connect the two. I would love it if a presidential campaign, but also any campaign had to do significantly less of that or zero of it. I don't know if we'll ever get to zero, but I would like to see someone emerge in this space that can be the glue between this ecosystem. Somewhere where I can log into a dashboard and I can put my ActBlue API key 
and I can put my service API key and I can put my outvote API key and these systems start syncing and they start connecting and moving data up and down between them. And I think never having to build that again would be a wonderful boon to this ecosystem, not only for presidentials, because I think presidentials can continue to build it if they must. Like they'll have the resources to hire the team to do that. But every other campaign down the ballot who won't be able to build that could benefit from these tools being able to talk to each other. Even for small businesses or nonprofits, or I mean, that is a challenge in just about every organization that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard problem. And I talk to people about this problem and I, I search for integrations that exist outside of the political ecosystem. And there's some products that are doing interesting work. I mean, Zapier or If This Then That are kind of these, these platforms where you can connect tools together. Something else that I like to point out is, is Mint, where like you can have a dashboard and all your financial data is kind of all collected all in one space automatically. But it's a really hard problem. And like if you've used Mint before, you've probably logged in and you've seen, hey, your Chase account can't connect. We'll try again in four hours or something. It's not easy at all. I think one of the, the benefits that we might have in the, the democratic tech space is that the tools are being built by a pretty small population of people who work really closely together versus um, other industries who operate under the guise of trade secrets. And I think we are a little less uh, invested in trade secrets. And I think there can be tighter collaboration that, that might make it easier. But I don't want to suggest that the problem itself is easy. In fact, I think the problem is really, really hard. Who do you think in the political tech space on our side is positioned to maybe do that or add that or contribute to that? There are some some small groups that are popping up thinking about this problem. Um, And I I haven't been able to do much research on them myself, so I don't want to give too much of of an assessment. But I know that there's an, an organization called Blue Link that has popped up that is is trying to think about and build something to address this problem. There's also uh, the movement TMC is building a tool called Parsons. It's largely oriented on the soft side, but uh, I think that Parsons could start existing in a way that could be used for both the soft side and the hard side. I think Parsons needs to mature a little bit beyond code and into more of product. Um, But those are the two efforts that I'm aware of. I think some of these larger groups, whether they're companies or they're collaborative efforts, are building tools to support their needs, but maybe need to start thinking about it uh, at the ecosystem more broadly. I think, you know, every action is is the organization that comes up that has the resources and money and buy-in from the from the ecosystem that if they wanted to invest in this, I think they absolutely could invest in it and have a level of success. But the question is, do they want to invest in that? What's next for you? Typically, after a presidential campaign that wins, you have a choice. Do I want to move into the administration? Do I want to go out as an entrepreneur? Do I want to start consulting? Do I want to get the heck out of politics? What are you thinking? (laughs) Friends and family ask me this a lot. I mentioned that I am geographically constrained. um, And so the idea of moving to Washington, D.C., while I I think it's a lovely city, I, I don't think it's in the cards for me in the next couple of years. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have as many conversations with folks in this space to talk about, you know, the learned experiences and expertise that I bring from the past two cycles. And I ask, how can I continue contributing this back to the space? I I don't see myself going back into just the tech industry. I, I've talked to a lot of folks in this space who have, have done that, and I don't fault them. You can make a lot more money. Uh, back in the tech industry, and you can have much more reasonable hours, and and it, it's it's really nice. But I look back at the, my time in the tech industry and how how antsy I felt throughout that time. I don't want to trick myself into doing that again. I, I know that uh, the the two jobs I've had in my career that I've woken up every morning excited to do were my work on the sixteen campaign and the work on the twenty campaign. I don't know if I'm going to do another presidential. It's incredibly demanding. <laughs> it's it's very, very hard. 
but I don't want to step away from this space. I don't have a firm answer yet for what's next for me, but I can tell you my goal is to stay in this space and contribute if this space will have me. Oh, I suspect that you'd be in demand. What is it that you most like to do? Is it the building of product, overseeing that in the context of politics or is it in the context of a mission that you subscribe to? What is the sort of nexus of interest and skills that that gets you excited? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely drawn to mission-driven organizations and that is not limited to democratic politics. I think democratic politics for me is a natural conclusion to that though, because I I do support the progressive uh, agendas in the United States. And I think that uh, Democrats are working towards a better and more just world. And I think it's really easy for me to look at that and point at it and, and say, yes, these the outputs of this work uh, result in a mission and a worldview that I support. So I think that's why I'm drawn to democratic politics. And I do absolutely see the value in continuing building technology in that service. I think that the skills that I can bring to this space involve not only building the technology myself, but bringing people in to build that technology. I, you know, I actually wrote very little code on the Biden campaign. All the software engineers wrote the code and I was running around trying to just unblock them and make, make them more efficient. And I think that's another reason why I'm not super drawn back into the technology industry is that I don't wake up every morning getting really excited about some new language framework that's on the top of Hacker News this morning. Uh, I'm really grateful that there are people who get excited about that, and I would like to hire them and bring them into the fold. But I'm more interested in the outputs of the technology than the the process of, of building it uh, directly. Tell me if I'm reading this right. It sounds like you're more interested in an existing organization like a DNC or a, one of the data vendors or software enterprise in the space than maybe building your own. I think that's how I'm thinking about it, um, mostly because I see there's a lot of value in longevity. I don't think the DNC or the DTRIP or the DS are ever going away, whereas I could see um, you know, a small startup that spins out of this cycle, it's high risk and it might not get to exist very long. And, and I think part of that might just be my learned experiences of, of doing the, the mission-driven startup in the past. You know, When we were at Tim Shell, I was immensely proud of the work we were doing in building the groundwork, just immensely proud of that. And when it, when it just suddenly stopped, uh, that was a big emotional hit, but I also think it was a, a, a loss for the ecosystem. And I think that if we uh, can focus our investments in organizations that have the best chance of sticking around and we can convince those organizations to actually innovate, then we have the highest chance of success of building technology that continues to move this ecosystem forward. I think there will always be the the unicorns, and I don't mean unicorns in the Silicon Valley way of billion dollar companies, but I think there will always be the unicorns that come out of the startup space, such as Mobilize. And I would love to see more of that. I wanna see more of that because I, again, I think I think campaigns need to be building less technology, not more. And I'm really grateful for the people who have the emotional capacity to invest in building those startups. Their time and effort and toil is, is what we need. But I also think it's a question of, of math. Like for every, for every mobilize that comes out and is immensely successful, I think we have five or six other organizations that will never be the unicorn, but they're, they're providing real value to the space. And then I think there will be the rest that for better, for worse, don't make it due to revenue, funding, product, whatever. I think you're exactly right. You know, one thing I meant to ask you back a bit in the conversation, you talked a bit about how there were so many Democratic campaigns in the primary presidential campaigns. After Biden consolidated the win there, it seems to me there must have been a lot of the people who had been spread out who were available. Did you guys hire much off of the technology groups in your competitors or how did that work? So you're absolutely correct. I think there was a sudden supply of democratic technologists who were available and, and excited to get involved with the Biden campaign. The way that ended up 
panning out was the vast majority of them went over to the analytics side of, of the organization. Um, and I think that is largely a function of how analytics work is distributed during a presidential cycle where the presidential campaign works tightly with the coordinated, which works tightly with the DNC and works tightly with all the state parties. The need from the Biden campaign side was actually much heavier on the analytics team. And that's where a lot of the folks went. I believe a lot of that was, again, a function of the fact that we had a vendor ecosystem and we didn't need to support the peer-to-peer texting tool or the volunteer signup tool or all of these things. Um, We did recruit and hire a number of software engineers onto my team who had come from other campaigns. We had a very small team uh, comparatively. You know, in 2016, by the end of that cycle, if you count everyone who was in-house and then plus the groundwork, which I do, the Clinton technology team was about 100 people, which was huge. At the end of the 2020 cycle on the Biden campaign, we had something around 25, and that is engineers and product and leadership and, and and all of those things. So like we were a much smaller operation, but again, I think that was a function of the maturity of the vendor ecosystem. Wow. That is really a lot different. To what extent did you guys look at what the Trump campaign or the Republicans were doing? They got a head start on you. Did we copy anything or how do you think that it compared? From the digital organizing side, there was a lot of eyes on what the Trump campaign was doing. It's no secret that Donald Trump was the Twitter president, right? And so like he had this massive audience, but that was also Donald Trump. And to try to shoehorn any digital organizing in the style of Donald Trump onto Joe Biden would just feel not genuine. They're not identical. Not identical people. <laughs> so like that, I think that was definitely more of a focus for the digital organizing side of the house. But we also just approached this election very differently than Donald Trump did. Again, you, you saw all of these articles at the beginning of the general election that, oh, Joe Biden won't leave his basement, which was immensely reductive because what we had actually done was we built an entire television studio in his house. It was a professional TV studio, and it allowed him to not only satellite into the networks and the cable news channels, but we were also producing an, a massive amount of content uh, that we were distributing. And you know, Donald Trump was doing rallies, and uh, we were not willing to put our supporters at risk through the pandemic to hold rallies. So we, we just took a different approach here. And one of the ways this manifested was um, we built this right into the JoeBiden.com homepage. We had a live stream on the website that anytime Joe Biden was doing some video content from his home studio, as long as it wasn't something with the networks that they had the rights to, if it was something that we had the rights to, we were live streaming it front and center at the top of JoeBiden.com. This was actually, in my opinion, it was brilliant because it got people to the website to see the content. But, you know, what's the point of the website? The point of the website, first and foremost, is to get people to donate. And we integrated a donation feature right there into the live stream and it kept people there. And and I think this was a really brilliant move by the technology team, by the design team, by the digital team and the online fundraising team. That's, that's pretty cool. If you were going to look back at the, you know, you have the, all of a few weeks here, but if you were going to look back at the campaign and you had something you could do over again, is there anything that you would change dramatically? Some of the hiring priorities, I wish we had brought in people earlier. By the time that we actually had the ability to hire for the general election, it was already the end of July or early August. And asking someone to leave their highly compensated tech job for a poorly compensated job that was only going to exist for four months is a really hard sell. And it made it really hard to recruit. I think, you know, this was a reflection again of when did fundraising happen and what were the priorities of leadership who got to make these financial decisions. But if I could advise the next iteration of the cycle of what to do is like figure out how how much technology you need. And that's a very, very (laughs) abstract question. But come up with some answer to that question and don't wait on hiring. You know, one of the things that I think 
comes out of democratic leadership is that a lot of a lot of folks who who ascend in this space do so through an experience of uh, starting in field organizing and moving up that ladder, which I think field organizing brings a very important context to what the work that we're doing. But I also think it frames how you approach problems uh, in a very boxed way. When you have many years and cycles of field organizing, sometimes you approach problems by asking the question, how many people do you need? And then you say, I need nine people, let's say. And then they say, approved, go hire nine people. And I think that's much harder for technology. It's like hiring and recruiting, even outside of politics, it is slow and it is hard and finding the right people. You can't just slot someone in to do the job. You have to slot a highly specialized person in to do the job sometimes. Certain aspects of the campaign, you can defer that hiring until the last second because there are people lined up to take the job. And I don't think that's the case with technology. Even back in 07, when I was doing Clinton, running that department, it was true even on a smaller scale then. I mean, it, it's just so hard to find the right person and it takes time. I would love it if more people were at the table making those decisions, not only for technology, but across the board in campaign. I think there's a lot of uh, problems that we as Democrats try to tackle in electoral politics that can be solved in ways that don't lend themselves to the organizing model. I'm not saying throw out the organizing model. I'm just saying bring more voices to that table and more problem-solving methodologies. When, when Trump won, one of the things he did that seemed smart at the time was to name Brad Parscale to run his next campaign. And I don't know that that worked out perfectly, <laughs> but the idea that that the campaign ought to keep going in some form or fashion to not lose its tech, to keep building its audience, to be prepared, to take advantage of that advantage seems intelligent. Is there any enduring operation on the Biden side, on the campaign side? I noticed this as well in 2017 that, wow, they, they decided not to shut down the presidential campaign. And that's actually really smart from not only like an infrastructure standpoint, but from a fundraising standpoint, right? Like fundraising is, a, is the area under the curve, right? And if you can start the curve earlier, the better you are. The, the short answer to that question is, is no. The, the Biden campaign is not really enduring in any meaningful way. Now that President Biden has taken office, um, in fact, it's it's very rapidly wound down, and the infrastructure, not only from technology but all of the other organizing infrastructure, is really just in this holding pattern now. We're looking at at moving things over to the DNC, but I also think the DNC is in this interesting position where they're in a little bit of a holding pattern, waiting for the new chair and new leadership to show up and define what their priorities are. So we really have not mimicked that pattern that Donald Trump initiated after he took office. I'm somewhat surprised because I think it gave him an undeniable head start in the 2020 cycle. And I think we'll have a head start in the 2024 cycle just by the nature of being the incumbent. But I agree, it would be beneficial if we could have this operation continuing to exist over the next couple of years. If as Democrats, we think that it's gross to continue the presidential campaign into uh, infinity, okay, that, that's okay. But then we need, a, we need an alternative. And whether that's the DNC or some other apparatus, we, we need to empower those organizations to keep the organization moving. Yeah, I find that pretty frustrating to hear, although not at all unexpected. We've had this problem of you know, mothballing our technology and not keeping our campaigns going as far as I can remember. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, you saw some like momentum with the Sanders campaign and our revolution and, and, and the folks between 2016 and 2020. And you, you might be able to make a pretty strong argument that that's why Sanders busted out of the gate so quickly for 2020, because they didn't have to start over. He already had a fundraising base. He, he was way ahead. He had the pole position. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I can't argue the fact that we should keep the Biden campaign running because that ship has sailed. The Biden campaign is no longer running. 
So at this point, I can argue the fact, okay, then we need to empower the DNC to keep everything moving forward. It's not just about keeping the lights on. It's about actually continuing to improve. Maybe you should go over there and make that case if you haven't already. <laughs> you know, I, I have talked to as many people as, as will listen to me about continuing, especially from a technology angle, continuing the innovation in organizations that can continue doing it. And it's clear to me that at least for Democrats, that's not the presidential campaign. So we need to move this investment into organizations that can continue building. And building doesn't mean one group builds some tech, that group dissolves, the tech goes into a rot pile, and then the DNC needs to pick out the rot pile. That's a terrible method. We need to keep teams and organizations and infrastructure and technology together for this to be successful. Is Nell Thomas staying at the DNC? Um, well, I don't want to speak for now, but I, th- I think so. Like, I haven't heard anything to suggest that she was leaving. So I think Nell and, and the technical leadership, uh, Bob Lord and uh, Kat Atwater and everyone else there, as far as I know, I think they're all there. I talk to them as, as much as they w- are willing to get on the phone with me. And I, I believe they all see this similarly to how I see it in that they are uniquely positioned to continue moving the ball forward. So we need the money and the energy to empower them to do that. We might even be facing the same guy again if they don't manage to uh, <laughs> make it impossible. And he already raised several hundred million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's what's terrifying about this is like, you know, we, we, we the clawed stakes are out, gigantic. We claw, yes, exactly. We clawed out of this, but like we could easily fall back into this hole right again. Yep. I, I agree. What's a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? So I, I don't know if it's necessarily a question, but something that I've been thinking about that we didn't get to talk about is how much the democratic uh, digital organizing has moved into SMS and texting in the 2020 cycle. What do you think of that? I, I'm worried that we're just burning another way of communicating and there's no prioritization of what's important and before long people will treat it like email and they won't even pay attention to it anymore. Yeah, I think those are really valid concerns and this is how I'm thinking about it too. I think in 2020 we we utilized SMS to our organizing advantage and we were really smart about it. As email has 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 started failing conversions, uh, SMS was a really smart way to get people's attention. I was talking to a donor in 16 who said to me, why, why are we emailing everyone? Why aren't we texting? And I kind of shrugged in 2016 and said, well, I, I don't make the digital organizing decisions, but good point. <laughs> and then it was, uh, you know, 2020 was very heavily invested in SMS texting. But the, the fascinating thing about this is like, our communities are more and more not living in text messages, right? Like, I talk to most of my friends on Signal. My wife talks to all of her coworkers on WhatsApp. I have a lot of friends who live in Discord channels or Twitter DMs, and like that's where they talk to people. And so one of the important aspects of relational organizing isn't just who are you talking to, but it's how are you talking to them. And so if I have all of these friends who are in Slack, and then all of a sudden one of them tries to do some relational organizing with me over text, but we've never talked over text. That feels super weird. Like, I think it starts diminishing the value and the return. on. You should know for everybody what channel they most prefer from, exactly. from a particular communicator. Exactly. And, and this is also a very, very, very hard problem because not only are there so many avenues, but, you know, texting is a protocol and it was, it's easier to build technology that integrates on a protocol where I can text anyone in the world. But now I have these walled gardens of, of, of these communication mediums that not only are unique and different and need their own tooling on top of them, but some of them don't want you building that tooling. I don't think Facebook would be super happy if I could just know who was in WhatsApp and who they were talking to and how to reach out to them versus a, a, my phone's contact book. I can install an app and you know, you can hook into the contacts there. So it's a really hard problem. And I think the thing that I want to see happen over the next couple of years is I want to see uh, technologists in this space 
start attempting this problem because I'm really scared that by 2024 or beyond, if we're still over-indexing on SMS, we are going to miss out on huge sections of the population that don't respond to that anymore. So much of the 2016 cycle, in retrospect, seemed to have been impacted by disinformation online, aimed at Hillary in particular. Did you see that much aimed at Biden? Were there a lot of countermeasures? What was happening? So we definitely saw a lot. It also wasn't as weird. Like, you know, in in 2016, people thought Hillary was a, like, it was a body double. And there were like, this, like, you know, all, all of this really gross stuff about John Podesta. We, we definitely saw massive amounts of disinfo on the, against Joe Biden and against the campaign. But it, it definitely didn't feel just as like outlandish. And may, maybe that's because we're numb to it now. Maybe it didn't feel as jarring this time. But also I think a lot of it was because like the disinfo was coming from the president of the United States. <laughs> he'd, he'd say things like, oh, uh, Hunter Biden did insert random terrible thing. And like it was coming from the president. From a normal person perspective, I, I suspect maybe we're just more numb to it than we were in 2016. But when I talk to people who are working on combating disinformation, I don't think any of them would tell you things are getting better. I think they'll tell you things are getting worse. Oh, great. Well, Matt, it's really an honor to talk to you today. Is there anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I think this was a really excellent conversation and I appreciate the opportunity. I do too. That was Matt Hodges. Matt is at HodgesMR on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.